In this episode, we chat with Eric Burkertz, the CEO of Clean Energy Trust, a Chicago-based nonprofit that supports early-stage startups in the mid-continent region of the U.S., working on solutions for clean energy, decarbonization, and environmental sustainability. We discuss the clean tech space, some key emerging trends, and the role of finance in the creation of a carbon-neutral economy. Yes, it was such a privilege to have Eric here with us and have a great conversation. Um, He has been active in the clean energy space for more than two decades and just has so much wisdom to share with us. So please enjoy the episode and our interview with Eric. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Kairos Energy Podcast. Ben and I are so excited today to have a wonderful conversation with Mr. Eric Burkertz, a man who has been in the clean energy space for more than two decades and who currently sits as the CEO of the Clean Energy Trust. So we wanted to give a warm Kairos welcome to Mr. Eric Burkertz. Welcome. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Ben, thanks for having me. And uh, look, looking forward to the dialogue. Certainly, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I guess I, one thing that I think it might be worth starting off with is hearing a little bit more about what Clean Energy Trust is and, and maybe the genesis story behind the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Clean Energy Trust is somewhat of a unique entity. Uh, we're structured as a 501c3 public charity, but we really act more like a seed venture capital investor. So our mission is to support early stage startups that are working on clean energy, decarbonization, environmental sustainability, uh, and to support them with catalytic capital and then a lot of sort of roll up your sleeves, you know, elbow grease support to help them scale. And uh, we're really engaging with these companies that very early stages, right when they're coming out of universities or, or labs. Uh, some of them are coming out of the proverbial garage, but they're really kind of taking their first steps into the commercial market. Uh, and that's really where we're engaging and helping them uh, become successful. Um, the organization was founded uh, in 2010. So uh, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, Unfortunately, you know, the anniversary fell during COVID, so we weren't able to sort of really uh, celebrate it to the extent we wanted to do it. But uh, it's still a milestone we're very proud of. Uh, the genesis uh, for the organization, the idea, came from Nick Pritzker uh, and Michael Polsky. Uh, and they really were just frustrated back in 2010 that uh, the Midwest was punching below its weight when it came to uh, commercializing clean technologies and, and, you know, creating startups around, you know, clean tech and climate tech. Um, so they said, hey, we really need to do something about it because, you know, the Midwest has tremendous assets, Fortune 500 companies, world-class universities, uh, you know, density of STEM-educated uh, kind of people who are, you know, have a strong sort of entrepreneurial ethos. So why are we not really doing as well as the Bay Area or the Northeast? Uh, and they said, well, let's create an organization to really attack the problem. And that was sort of the, the, the beginnings of Clean Energy Trust. Uh, they recruited Amy Francetic, uh to, to help them get the organization launched. Uh, and the early years were really focused on ecosystem development, really connecting all the different actors and stakeholders in the, the broader Midwest 
with one another to kind of start creating that connectivity to, uh, you know, have a frictionless environment for, you know, startups to, to be successful. And then in 2014, we really started focusing more on the, the entrepreneurs and, and the startups and really focusing our efforts on, you know, identifying kind of the most promising innovations, the most promising entrepreneurs and helping them become successful. Brilliantly said, Eric. And I love what you stated and recognize that the Midwest is often an untapped resource or really underutilized, right? So I think when we look at the sectors of the Midwest in our proficiencies, we've got automotive manufacturing, we have incredible R&D infrastructure and funding, and we have amazing higher education institutes across the region. So when you were really evaluating where you wanted to start and really create the clean energy trust in the atmosphere that you desired for it, what made you select the Midwest? Yeah, so again, the, the Midwest, when you look at the asset base, um, you know, there's national laboratories, you know, whether it's Argonne, Fermilab, Ames, uh, if, you know, we actually do push down south into Tennessee, so you have Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Um, you look at the density of Fortune 500 companies in the Midwest, and these are companies that are, you know, in the B2B uh business to business realm you know they're manufacturing companies they're they're actually making stuff um and you know there's the automotive industry the automotive supply chain and then you know really really you know just importantly i mean the universities in the midwest are uh, you know you have world-class universities with world-class engineering programs and world-class science uh disciplines uh, so all the pieces uh really are here i think what's missing or what's different about the midwest than the bay area or the northeast is a lot of these assets are geographically dispersed uh, so you know you look at the bay area it's a very dense environment you know uh, so companies are right next to one another people are bumping into each other at you know the coffee shop or when grabbing lunch um, northeast same thing it's a very dense environment geographically uh, you know in the midwest you know going from you know ohio state university to the university of michigan to uh, you know northwestern those are hundreds of miles of distance separating them so i think that the, the ecosystem uh is fragmented and that was you know at the beginning that was really uh sort of a point of attack for us figuring out how to address that fragmentation to start creating greater connectivity between all these great assets that's fascinating can you speak a little bit to the role that you envision as a leader um to understand what the clean energy trust can do to allow the economy to transform toward that net zero carbon operation yeah, well, you know, core core to our work is addressing that that very early stage capital gap that is a, a serious issue for companies that are in hard tech, deep tech, kind of science based innovation. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that a lot of that type of innovation takes a very very long time. You know, to go from you know the lab bench to market to scale. And the traditional capital markets and, you know, the private equity 
markets they are working on a different time horizon so they're they're working with time horizons that are much shorter than the realities of uh, sort of funding and scaling these these new innovations so first and foremost you know we're going in with patient capital providing that capital at the very earliest stages and then really helping those companies find additional uh, capital partners to to stay with them and grow with them over time uh, because you know these are you know some of these cycles are 15 20 years before a company can go from idea to scale to mark you know to market to scale uh, it's very different than a uh, you know, a, a software company or a SaaS company that literally can go from zero to a billion dollar valuation in 36 months. Um, so that's first and foremost, uh, is really creating that, that support and, you know, providing that catalytic capital for, for these great ideas to reach the market and not die on the vine. Um, that being said, uh, you know, we're also really starting to, spent a lot of time thinking about how, you know, how sort of diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, you know, plays in, in our work. And, and, you know, that has different dimensions, you know, and an important dimension is ensuring that these innovations uh, actually reach and serve uh, the populations that are uh, disadvantaged or underrepresented or, or working in sort of tough or living in tough neighborhoods because they're the ones who are disproportionately affected by, you know, climate change and, and the disruptions and chaos that results. Um, so how do you get these technologies to, to work for everybody, uh, not just the wealthy? Um, you know, we're increasingly spending time thinking about that. And then we're also spending a lot of time you know, thinking about how do we get more uh, entrepreneurs and founders of color, uh, you know, kind of at the helm of the, these really innovative new companies. Uh, you know, how do we get them, you know, to start companies? How do we ensure that, you know, these type of founders are getting the funding they need to continue to succeed and scale? So we're spending a lot of time on that, that as well, because, uh, you know, this, this issue of climate justice and climate you know, equity is very important and it has to be part of the conversation and the work that we're doing. One question I have on that, Eric, is when we're talking about this clean tech space, how does Clean Energy Trust define that? What is clean tech and what is not clean tech? Well, it's interesting because there's, there's, uh, there's sort of been a very uh, concerted uh almost a rebranding of this space. Uh, now, if you look at how others are talking about it, they're talking about it as climate tech, uh, not necessarily clean tech. Um, you know, I, I think in part that's to distance the sector away from some of the challenges that <laughs> happened in, in, in the mid 2000s where a lot of people lost money in clean tech. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, these are these are technologies that are really driving, uh, you know, impact on, on climate metrics. Uh, you know, obviously, greenhouse gas uh, mitigation is 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 a huge one. But it's also starting to look at issues around water, water conservation. Uh, it, it's looking at, you know, issues around 
recycling, reuse. Um, so it's, you know, a lot of people, when they think clean tech, they think solar, they think wind, maybe they, they're starting to think about batteries, but it's now touching every dimension of the economy. Uh, you know, we have a investment in a sort of a, a, a advanced materials company that, um, you know, essentially makes composite materials uh, stronger and more durable. You know, that has a direct application in light weighting of automobiles, which in turn has dramatic uh, impact on, on range and distance. So, you know, the, the, the clean tech, climate tech, however you define it, there are so many dimensions to it now because everything has, uh, you know, an impact. Uh, we have another investment in an optical computing company. Again, it's, you know, at first blush, you wouldn't think that that really is a clean tech or climate tech company, but it's really addressing some of these issues of, you know, data center energy usage. Uh, so the, the dimensions, again, are so broad. You know, it's not just a wind wind turbine or a solar panel these days. It's, you know, every element of, you know, kind of the economy is being touched. Eric, I, I certainly appreciate that perspective because I think a, a common phrase we've heard in the last few weeks certainly has been all finance is climate finance, right? The idea that everything is at some point connected. Um, it's all connected to, you know, the way our economy is built and functions. It's all connected to the way that we think about environmental justice and energy equity. But also, I appreciate that that you shared that the Clean Energy Trust is really, really intentional about understanding that energy equity is not all that there is, right? There are other components, such as this waste component and the water component, that are equally, if not more important in certain instances as the energy equity piece. So could you share a little bit when you are considering investment in a company or considering becoming a partner and an advisor to them, um, what are some of the internal questions that you ask in terms of how are we promoting equity through this procurement or through this investment? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so obviously, when we diligence companies, we, we follow a process, uh, you know, that is a, you know, a process that you know most venture capital investors would follow. Yeah, you know, we look at the you know market size, the commercial potential, the you know the the barriers to entry. We look at the management team, and you know so forth and so on. But uh, impact, uh, environmental impact, is is a is a huge huge uh, sort of criterion for us and there you know it's a, it's a challenging exercise because we're not analyzing what the company uh, you know has done today because a lot of these companies aren't yet in the market they may not even be out of the lab so you can't assign a metric to you know how many you know how many tons of co2 this technology has already eliminated or reduced uh, you have to do some fairly sophisticated forecasting around you know if this technology is adopted at scale what is the potential impact it might have 
and then you know make some assessments based on kind of a forward-looking potential uh, impact. Um, and greenhouse gases obviously uh, are one metric. Uh, you know, gallons of water saved. Uh, you know, could be another metric. You know, tons of waste averted could be a third. Yeah. So it depends on the nature of the technology in terms of what the environmental metric is. Uh, but again, environmental environmental metrics are huge. Uh, now, on the question of diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, looking at the, uh, you know, the composition of the founding team, uh, you know, that, that's, that's direct, that's immediate. Uh, it's also, I think, and this is more where our kind of the coaching and mentorship comes in, because uh, the founding team in certain instances may not uh, be diverse, uh, either, you know, gender, color, uh, ethnicity, but, by mentorship and by providing some some resources, we can help them take take those type of considerations into account when they begin to scale and hire and, and layer on more employees. So I think that's that's something where that really comes into play later on, uh, oftentimes through sort of the coaching and the mentorship. Um, we do look at, uh, you know, if we're looking at environmental impact, you know, there's, there's a certain holistic quality, right? So if a technology has a positive environmental impact, oftentimes there's, you know, it, it benefits uh, people broadly. Um, but we also look at certain technologies and say, okay, can this technology be deployed into, uh, you know, a community that, you know, is di disproportionately uh, or negatively affected by, uh, you know, climate, you know, climate impacts. So, you know, we we want to avoid situations where you know you have a car like a Tesla, which is you know it is a tremendous, it's been like a huge, huge driver of behavioral change. But you know, the people enjoying Teslas are you know living in very wealthy communities are, are very wealthy people. So that type of technology is not necessarily directly reaching markets uh, that are, you know, suffering from last mile transportation issues or, you know, power outages or what have you. So, you know, it's, this is a little bit more uh, art than science at this point, but trying to assess, okay, how does this technology translate to, you know, all communities and not just sort of the, the wealthy and the affluent. Absolutely fascinating, Eric. And I love what you said. You're right. As we dive into the world of climate investing, impact investing, it's more of an art than a science, right? Because when you begin to evaluate impacts across all spheres and in all socioeconomic boundaries, you do recognize it's not as scientific as you would like it to be. And it's not as straightforward, certainly, as you would like it to be. Eric, one thing that, that we have continually read about and heard about and Rachel and I have discussed at length is this idea of a SPAC and what they are, what they do, and why they're so critical to climate tech and to this space in particular. Do you have any comments on, on sort of the role of SPACs in this space and, and why they are critical? 
Hi, it's Rachel here. We're going to take a pause, a quick time out in the interview right now to define what a SPAC is. So if there are any other engineers listening like I am, um, we're going to do a quick finance 101. So a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, and it is a company that is formed strictly to raise capital by going public. So in recent years, SPACs have been incredibly utilized in the clean tech space to bring products to market a lot quicker than via a traditional IPO. So what this allows these SPAC companies to do is it gives them essentially an 18 month timeline from when they declare their intent to go public with the SEC until they are acquired or merge with another company. Yeah, I know SPACs are uh, definitely sort of the, the, uh, a topic of uh, a lot of discussion, debate, fascination. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, just taking a step back, uh, you know, I think the you know, you have this situation in the market where, you know, there's just a mountain of capital, sort of institutional capital um, starting to look for opportunities to invest in climate and environmental sustainability. And there just weren't a lot of opportunities, you know, uh, public company opportunities for them to, to do so. So, you know, you, you saw, you saw this sort of pent up demand starting to build where, you know, this capital was looking to get deployed into climate solutions and there just wasn't all that much opportunity. And I don't know kind of the, how the, how the, you know, who was the first person to kind of, you know, put two and two together. But, you know, you took this concept, which, you know, historically has been, you know, the, you know these reverse mergers into public companies or what have you. you know, that, that was, you know, five years ago. That was, you know, you heard about, uh, you know, what is now being called SPAC, but, you know, a reverse merger. And you were like, okay, there's, that's just like the, the, bottom of the barrel dregs of the, the capital markets. There's there's like hair all over this transaction and you know nobody in their kind of right mind would really go after it. But somebody kind of put two together and said, look, you know, this vehicle could be a way of bringing some of these late stage kind of companies that do have uh, that have you know the profile of a you know of climate tech or, or or clean tech to 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 market and to make them accessible to you know this this huge mountain of institutional capital that is looking to uh, invest. And overall, I think SPACs SPACs are are a good thing. They're um, uh, you know they're providing sort of a source of capital at a, at a very kind of critical stage in, in companies and growth development and scaling. The, the problem is, is that there's still, I think there's, there's too much capital and too few good deals. Um, I think I, I saw some data literally last week that, you know, there's like $8.1 billion um, of SPAC money looking for, uh, sort of suitable deals and the, the fact of the matter is you know there you know some of the really good suitable deals have already been taken right so the question is you know are they going to give that money back or are they going to end up with this kind of uh, you know are they going to be incentivized to do a deal even if that deal is kind of a bad deal uh, 
And that's the risk where suddenly some of these deals that shouldn't get done are getting done. And then the SPAC market blows up and then all of a sudden, yeah, everybody ends up sort of, uh, you know, brought down by it. And that's the risk behind the, you know, these SPAC transactions is that it's a good vehicle, but there just may not be enough good deals uh, to, to go around given the, the amount of capital that's looking to go into it. I wonder too on this this idea of of just kind of a, a scarcity of the the right deals that make sense. Thinking about the role of clean energy trust and and sort of how unique it is in this space, do you find that what you're doing, how you evaluate companies and how you diligence companies, do you think that's something that's being practiced by other more traditional energy VCs in in the space? Yes, on uh, a lot of fundamental levels. Although, I, again. Coming back to when you think about a traditional venture fund, it's uh you know it's it's structured, you know you raise you raise a hundred million dollars into a fund. That fund has a ten year time horizon. Maybe you extend it for you know a year or two after year ten, but you're working you know with a ten year time horizon. You know, you look to invest that hundred million dollars in the first couple of years, and you look to start harvesting returns off of that. Uh, those investments kind of by year five so that you can kind of wrap up the fund by year 10. Now, a lot of these technologies that are, you know, sort of hard tech, clean tech, deep science, you know, you're not going to be able to meet that time frame because that's just not, not the, the cadence of how that type of innovation happens. So a lot of the climate funds that you're seeing in market, uh, they're really looking at, okay, where can we play in climate and still kind of successfully stay within that, you know, kind of those time horizons. So you're seeing a lot of activity and a lot of money going towards, you know, investments in, you know, data and analytics and control kind of software and control uh, solutions. Uh, so, you're seeing, okay, you know, you're seeing some really interesting activity around uh, software for assessing climate risk. Uh, you're seeing, you know, obviously a lot of interesting uh, opportunities around software and control systems for managing fleets of batteries or EV charging infrastructure or what have you. But those are still at at the core of it, those are digital technologies. They're not trying to, uh, you know, formulate a new uh, chemistry for a longer lasting battery or uh, or an advanced material for, you know, uh, a better anode or cathode to a battery. It sounds like some of those, the, really the meat and potatoes and the, the really watershed type of innovations might require, like what you said, uh, a longer... Um, maturity cycle or gestation cycle, right? They just they take a little more time to sort of usher forward and, and to grow and blossom a bit. So I like what you said earlier about patient capital, um, but no, that's that's great insight. Yeah, and you look at uh, you know Bill Gates. He has a book out now. He's uh, yeah, you're seeing him on sixty minutes. You're seeing him on other sort of uh, uh, sort of media channels and. He, he talks about breakthrough energy ventures, which is, uh, you know, this venture fund that, that he helped catalyze. He's, he's one of the 
dominant funders, but, you know, Jeff Bezos is a funder, Jack Ma, you know, other kind of uber wealthy people are, are participating. That has a 20 year fund horizon, right? So that's not working against that 10 year VC fund model. It's, it's a 20 year fund horizon. And the reason they went to 20 years is because they're, they're, Investment thesis is they're going after the, you know, the, you know, the really big bets, the stuff that can, you know, remove a half a gigaton of, of carbon, you know, not, you know, sort of small incremental bets. But to do so, they need that extra runway. That's that's absolutely fascinating. And I think when you when you're beginning to broaden your perspective on the role of climate finance, on the role of climate tech, it really clarifies to know that not everything is based on a 2030 goal, right? And a 2030 vision, you know, all that's, although that's discussed quite openly and, and frequently in the context of cities and redevelopment, 2030 is not the end goal, right? So having that longer term horizon for these funds, for these funding mechanisms, you know, is, is consistently going to make an impact beyond just immediate goals. So on that note, Eric, I'd love to understand um, your company's perspective and how you kind of approached the diversity of of technology happening through and after the COVID-19 pandemic. So one of the things that comes to mind is the influence of public health on climate, um, the influence of different technological innovations on climate, you know, moving even toward public transit investment. How has that shaped um, kind of your your critical path toward investing in these companies? And has it broadened your engagement with different with companies in different sectors? Well, so at the core, I mean, we are we are focused on, you know, technologies that attack whether it's, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or, you know, or, you know, water or other sort of environmental uh, metrics um so again it's you know if we're if we're successful in that mission it has sort of a holistic positive impact versus being extremely targeted towards one um uh you know one particular problem set so it it has not shifted the way, you know, COVID-19 has not shifted uh, kind of where we're focusing um, our, our, our efforts, our, our money, our resources. So we're not shifting off to sort of new types of investment opportunities. It's still very much, um, you know, we're staying the course. The, you know, we're just being a lot more, you know, coming back to the question of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, we're being thoughtful about, okay, you know, not all innovation is going to come out of the, you know, the multi-million dollar lab at, at Northwestern. So, you know, are we speaking to the, you know, to the right, you know, constituents in market to see if we can address or find or, you know, provide avenues for other types of entrepreneurs. So, you know, city colleges, for instance, right. Or, uh, or other, you know, smaller universities that, you know, have a different, you know, student body. So we're thinking, you know, are we, are we necessarily uh, interacting with and creating pathways, uh, you know, uniformly 
or are we still sort of gravitating towards those, you know, usual suspects? And if we gravitate towards those usual suspects, we end up missing, I think, opportunity. Well, my impression of, of the venture capital community broadly has been that you have these these entrepreneurs bring their their product or their pitch or their company or whatever it is, their vision to a venture capitalist and, or to a VC firm or someone like Clean Energy Trust, and, and they sort of deliver this to you. It, on the other side of the equation, though, from your seat, do you find your organization looking for those people too, not just waiting for them to come to you? That's actually, it, it's, it's interesting that you call that out because in a lot of ways, when people are looking at sort of diversity um, and equity and, and, and the types of people receiving funding and the companies being funded, one of the biggest barriers to sort of underrepresented entrepreneurs getting funding is the fact that most VC firms will only look at opportunities that have been recommended to them by by other investors or by their immediate network. And unfortunately, those immediate networks are, you know, oftentimes, you know, people they know from, you know, college or from playing squash or from whatever, right? So it's it's not a it creates kind of an echo chamber where only certain types of deals and certain types of entrepreneurs are being presented and then getting funding. So 60, so we have investments in 35 companies. Um, 60% of those companies have uh, either female or uh, people of color as founders. Uh, a big part of why that is, is that we have an open process. We don't rely on these warm introductions from you know a closed network uh, so that's a big part of um, why that number is actually you know where it's at which is actually you know we're really proud of the the other um, thing that we just need to do better uh, and this goes to kind of the second part of your question is we do need to go out and be more proactive and looking for opportunities but again not necessarily um at the you know you know the you know the multi-million dollar lab at northwestern but you know you know are there you know are there really great entrepreneurs who are working on an idea at you know city colleges or some other kind of institution or uh you know or perhaps not affiliated with an institution but you know how do we reach them and say hey you know we're here as a resource and if you've got a great idea yeah, we'd love to talk to you, irrespective of gender, skin color, ethnicity, what have you. Really, really appreciate that perspective. And that 60% number of women-owned and people of color-owned businesses is certainly something to brag about. So that's incredible. Um, in terms of innovation, right, which is a vague word for many reasons, but what are some of the trends? I know you mentioned water and waste and materiality as critical trends that you're seeing moving forward with the companies you're approaching or are approaching you mutually. What are some of the next trends that you would see yourself um, potentially investing in or wanting to engage with on a mentoring or partnership scale? Yeah, well, clearly what's going on is this electrify everything phenomena right which which is yeah which is great and, and that touches 
you know, obviously there's mobility and transportation, you know, there's built environment, uh, you know, so, you know, heat pumps and things like that versus, you know, nat gas or, uh, you know, oil <laughs> boilers. Uh, you know, there's like looking at, okay, cement and steel production. Um, you know, how do you electrify a lot of this stuff? Um, so that's going to create, you know, just a, a range of, of opportunity, you know, because, um, you know, buying an electric car doesn't necessarily address, uh, you know, climate if, if the, the source of the electrons is, you know, coming from a coal-fired generation plant. So, uh, so you know, this electrify everything touches everything from, you know, how electrons are generated, uh, you know, if there's going to be greater and greater electrical load, then all of a sudden the grid has to become more flexible and robust. Uh, you have questions about, you know, how are you going to store um, energy, particularly if, you know, the, the generation resources are intermittent. Uh, and then, yeah, obviously there's the software analytics piece. You know, how are you going to, you know, with a much more complicated multivariate approach to the grid you know you're going to need software and analytics to really appropriately manage it and then you know you've got cement steel uh or you know air travel some of these really hard to electrify sectors suddenly that's where you know the hydrogen economy starts becoming interesting you know can you use you know, wind power to excess wind power to create hydrogen, which can then go into, you know, some of these harder to decarbonize sectors. Um, so I think overall, there's just going to be a plethora of kind of opportunity as everything starts electrifying. Um, and that's clearly square within our wheelhouse where, where we're having debates um, are, you know, one of the greatest <laughs> sources of, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions uh, and environmental degradation is the kind of the, you know, the food chain. And, you know, we're having conversations about, you know, should our mandate extend into uh, sort of alternative proteins? Uh, and uh, is that that clearly has a, a, a huge greenhouse gas mitigation uh, play, but does that really align with our kind of expertise and, you know, uh, kind of institutional, you know, knowledge? Uh, so we're debating that. But, you know, here in Chicago, there's this really super cool company called Nature's Find, uh, which is, uh, you know, an alternative protein company. And, you know, it's, it's amazing at how rapidly, you know, people are looking at, you know, alternatives to, to, you know, chicken and beef. And, you know, uh, you never would have thought it would come about as quickly as it has, but it's coming about quickly. And it's, you know, innovation's a big part of that. So Eric, as you've been in the clean energy space now for 20 years, um, and you do understand that it's not only a science, it's an art. Um, all of these just very diverse sectors, like the food industry you just mentioned, how have you seen these decisions and your research and your career shape your decisions on a, on a day-to-day -day basis or shape the decisions you make for your family and, and for your friends? Yeah, I, um, uh, you know, I grew up 
in Detroit. I'm a, you know, I, I love, I'm a, you know, I'm a motorhead. I love cars, you know, um, you know, we, we finally bought an electric vehicle because it's, you know, I felt like, you know, I had to, uh, you know, start walking the walk and sort of, you know, embracing it. And, um, yeah, it was like, uh, it was really sort of almost traumatic for me to do given kind of the, 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 you know, just the fact that, you know, my history growing up in Detroit, you know, was so automotive, you know, internal combustion engine centric. And, you know, this car is awesome. And, you know, I'm not gonna, um, I, I, I can't see myself you know, ever going back and buying a, you know, an internal combustion engine vehicle. Right. So there's, there's that step, you know, there's, you know, but there are challenges too. Like, um, you know, you know, I have a, you know, my father was an architect. I have a strong sensibility around sort of design aesthetics, environment, you know, kind of environment. And, you know, I'm perpetually sort of in the hunt for, you know, uh, you know, LED lights that are, you know, are warm and, and welcoming versus cold and, and, and clinical. And, you know, I'm trying to get to this point where, yeah, I don't feel like I'm making this sacrifice, uh, from a, you know, from a personal choice standpoint. Um, so it, it's hard. Yeah. Cause I love the, the warm light of a incandescent light bulb, but you know, you gotta find, you know, you gotta find alternatives to that. Uh, you know, always going to, you know, um, uh, probably will always eat beef, but, uh, you know, increasingly starting to, you know, try, you know, different, uh, you know, beyond meat and other products. And you know what, they're, they're, pretty damn good so you know it's it's going to take time but uh it's hard it is absolutely hard and very well said i'm sorry that you had the traumatic experience of buying an electric vehicle but i'm very happy <laughs> that you have now reported you've overcome those fears and and won't buy an internal combustion engine again right so eric was there anything else you would like to like to share about clean energy trust or any current ventures um, yeah, I guess I'm getting old, but, uh, I am, uh, I'm just really encouraged by just the, the sea change of, uh, not sea change, but that so many young people are like deciding to really dedicate, you know, their professional careers and, uh, go after, um, you know, professions that, that, you know, have some sort of mission and, and meaning and, and it's, you know, it's not just about earning the buck anymore. Uh, and we're seeing, we're seeing super, super smart people who, you know, 20 years ago would have marched off to wall street or, you know, to a hedge fund. And now are like, no, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take my, my mental horsepower and talents and, and do something that really matters. Uh, so just very, very encouraged by all of that. And, you know, blown away by just every year, you know, the, the people who are coming through our investment pipeline and what they're working on and the enthusiasm and commitment they have. So uh, I'm very sort of optimistic uh, about the future in, in large part, given the, the generations that are coming up behind me. So. 
Well, that's certainly encouraging for Ben and I to hear as well, because those will be our future colleagues. So um, thank you very much for sharing that. So we have a few fun questions to wrap up this awesome interview with, um, just to get to know you better and allow our audience to really understand, you know, what does the CEO do on a daily basis, maybe when he's not making very critical decisions. So we'll start with, what is a current book you're reading that you would be willing to recommend to some of our listeners? Yeah, so uh, (laughs) I just finished reading uh, this book called The Splendid and the Vile. Uh, It's by uh, an author called Eric Larson. He's the guy who wrote like Devil in the White City and... um, but it's uh it's about you know london churchill 1940 you know the you know just the the just the the you know battle of britain the, just the non-stop bombing of of london by by the germans and um it's just yeah i read that and i thought man you know here we are in you know this time of uh you know covid and and having to social distance and and sort of change the way we go about our daily lives but man i mean that is uh you know it's been difficult for sure but you know you look at you know what people have endured in the past and how they've endured it and you know what's amazing there is just the leadership uh from churchill just uh just the stalwart unification of you know the the british people against this this terrible circumstance that they find themselves in you know we certainly could learn a lot from from that today given what's going on so yeah so that's a book probably a longer answer than you you're looking for that's perfect all right ben next question over to you yes so eric who is someone that you admire living or dead and why oh yeah that's a tough one too uh it's just you know i look at somebody like uh alexei navalny (laughs) um yeah, you know, here's this guy who's had acid thrown in his face. Um, he's been poisoned. Uh, his family's been, you know, put under duress. He's now being shipped off to, uh, you know, a prison work camp. Yet he still remains steadfast in sort of, you know, standing up to Putin and criticizing what's going on. And, uh, you know, just, you know, I look at somebody like that and just, you know, the that's pretty impressive just in terms of the you know the conviction the the fortitude the you know the courage to keep fighting for what he believes in you know obviously there's probably you know he probably has some warts and other things that uh you know he's probably not like the perfect guy but man you know talk about you know standing up to you know to uh, you know for what you believe in very well said. All right. Our last question to wrap us out and take us home here. And I might already know the answer to this, but Eric, if you had a course change in your career, if you could go back 20 years to the start of your clean energy ventures, would you go a different route? Would you stay in your current sector? Or what would we find you doing right now? Yeah, I think, uh, going all the way back, um, if I was going to change course, uh, I probably would go into sort of industrial design that uh, I just, uh, again, I mentioned my father was an architect. I grew up around design. Um, so really, uh, 
you know, just fascinated by sort of the power of aesthetic and, and uh, you know, well-designed products and function. And um, I could see myself really geeking out on that. Fascinating. And a great parallel to what you do now. So I think that will take us out. Thank you so much, Eric, for being our guest on the podcast. Um, we couldn't appreciate it more. And we look forward to having you on maybe for a revisit of some of these topics next year, just to see how the year went. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Ben, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We are so grateful for Eric and the rest of the Clean Energy Trust team. Um, for lending us their time to interview Eric. And we are just so enthused to learn more about what the Clean Energy Trust has um, in their pipeline. So if you want to learn more about the Clean Energy Trust and the fascinating work they do, uh, we will put their website in the description of this episode. Thank you all and see you next time.